This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 19 Someday, a quiet part of her brain insisted, guns would hold more than eight bullets at a time, or there would be an invention that would attach a preloaded chamber to a gun. Her fingers shook as she slid the bullets into place and said a quick prayer that she would live long enough to invent such a device. Now, Stockwell yanked her up to her feet as she snapped the chamber closed. The car rattled and swayed underneath them as they staggered together to the door. Despite the sheets of rain now coming down, obscuring vision, they clearly had left the circus grounds behind in the time it had taken to load her gun. No gunshots rang out, forcing them back into shelter. The car bucked and swayed under them, and S looked down at the tracks. The ties and the cinders and mud between them flashed by in a blur. Too fast, Stockwell growled. He kept his grip on S's shoulder. Maybe he thought she would try to jump without even knowing where she would land? We'll be crossing the river soon, she said, feeling as if she could breathe again as she remembered that detail. The trestle is low to the water. I remember Gus laughing about it, asking what the railroad company thought it would do during flood season. We can jump in the water without getting hurt. Too fast. No, but the water. Before we get to the river, there's a huge boulder. Whoever built the tracks here decided it was easier to put in a hairpin turn instead of blasting and maybe changing the course of the river. We have to slow down to navigate that turn. So we jump off when whoever stole the train slows. The grimness of Stockwell's expression made her feel as if she had inhaled ice. And then she understood. Chances were good. Whoever had started the train had set it to increase speed, then jumped off. Maybe they were the same people shooting at whoever tried to jump off. There was no one in control of the engine. Even if she could climb up in all the wind and rain, walk the length of the car, jump down, and cross the two flat cars still loaded with equipment, then climbed over the cold car and reached the engine, she wouldn't know what to do to slow the train. Stockwell had to know, as the owner, but he couldn't climb with that false leg, not like he could do with his mechanical leg. How soon? The car seemed to leap up underneath them and crash down again on the tracks. She clutched at Stockwell, and he held on to her with one arm, grabbing hold of the door frame with the other. Maybe a minute at this speed. That was the warning bump. Cushions! She shoved herself away from him and stumbled across the jolting, swaying car to snatch up the long cushion off the couch. We have to try something. Couldn't make it any worse. He offered her a grim smile and stepped past her to pull up the other long cushion. He pulled out packing straps from a crate next to the door and folded the cushion around her longwise, buffering her from hips to shoulders, wrapped the strap around her, slipped both ends into her hands. Go! S couldn't do anything but stand there, shaking her head. The seconds ticked by with maddening speed. Stockwell cursed and wrapped the cushion around himself and held on to both ends. His arms crossed and shoved her out the door. S stumbled, and for a moment her bulk caught in the opening where the steps led down. She saw a flash of lightning, the landscape lit up in blue-white, and the river stretching out ahead of them and reaching to the right. Then Stockwell roared something and pushed her, and she fell, screaming. 
Despite the thick cushion, which she somehow kept around herself by her fingers digging holes in the thick cloth, S felt every rock and bump and dip and fallen tree limb as she rolled and bounced down the incline of the tracks. Water and mud soaked into the cushion and thickened it and slowed her descent until she rode to a soggy, sloppy stop. Then she couldn't seem to move her arms, couldn't unbend her fingers, and wasn't at all ashamed as gasps and sobs racked her body. A massive explosion lit up the sky, and the scream and screech and rolling banging of the train tumbling off the tracks filled her ears and made the ground shake. Shuddering, stunned silent, S unfolded her stiff fingers and let go of the cushion. Every bit of muscle ached and shrieked as if on fire as she sat up, shaking, and turned toward the sound. Fire lit up the landscape as oil spilled from tanks and flames leaped from the shattered engine, and the coal car continued tumbling, four more rotations before rocking to a stop. Part of the train trestle looked shattered, hit by one of the flat cars that lay on top of it, broken in half. S could only guess that momentum had kept it going when the heavier cars skidded off the track at the turn. She saw the monolith of the massive boulder Stockwell had mentioned. In the flickering flames that doggedly hung on despite the torrential downpour, she swore the boulder looked as if it had cracked in half. Stockwell, where was he? Had he gotten off the train in time? She should get up and look for him, but she couldn't. It took everything she had to sit and watch as the rain drowned the fire, even where oil and coal fed it. She was sitting in water. If she waited a little longer, even just to catch her breath, she thought the river would rise and catch her and sweep her away. Would that really be so bad? Just go to sleep. Don't be stupid, Odessa Fremont, she scolded herself, sputtering through the water sheeting down her face. S tasted salt. That made no sense. She wiped across her face, and in the flickering light from the oil fire she caught streaks of red. That was blood she tasted. Blood on her face. She was hurt. Cut. Oddly, she couldn't feel the injury. The pounding of the rain probably made her numb. Move, she scolded herself aloud. Maybe she had hit her head hard enough to affect her thinking. Her head tried to spin and twist right off her neck as she struggled to her feet. She staggered a few steps to the right, then corrected to the left, as the gray air turned to charcoal. She saw upright shapes moving in the darkness, weaving in and out among the streaks of watery moonlight that pierced the shredding clouds. S stood still, watching, feeling as if her brain was wrapped in cotton wool, and the water that filled her ears and eyes and weighed down her clothes slowed every thought. Cold horror thickened the muzzy slowness in her brain. S bent over, feeling as if she had been kicked in the ribs and she couldn't get her lungs to work. A whimper escaped her, as she easily envisioned Stockwell lying in a crumpled heap in the mud and water and debris from the train wreck, caught between dead and alive. She should do something, but she didn't know what or how. She stayed still, waiting, shivering, wanting to run, afraid to make a sound. Where was her derringer? She had put it back in its holster, under her clothes. There was an awful, aching, deep bruise on her hip where her holster belonged. She pressed her hand against the spot. Please, Savior, God, let that hard lump be my gun? S couldn't remember if she had any ammunition left. The dark shapes kept moving, walking past her. Please, don't let them turn. Don't let them see me. She went to her knees, pressed her face into her thighs, and shuddered. 
and bit her tongue to hold back the cries. Light shot through the darkness, shredding it, glistening on water and mud. S kept her head down, trying to breathe softly, trying not to move, straining her ears. She shuddered as footsteps squelched through the mud all around her. More light spilled around her. She could feel it touch her. She saw the shadow of her hunched body. Joshua? A semi-familiar male voice brought warmth to the ice in her blood. Josh, lad, speak to me. Then big hands caught hold of her shoulders and hauled her to her feet, lifting her up like she was nothing but a drowned kitten. Puckett grinned down at her, and another searcher came up behind him, spilling lantern light into Essa's eyes. Puck's grin melted into a grimace, and he swept her up in his arms. In moments, S found herself tossed up into the arms of someone on horseback. The galloping motion tried to turn her stomach inside out, and the dizzy feeling grew stronger until she couldn't keep her eyes open, but closing them just made things worse. She dug her teeth into her lips to keep her mouth closed and fight the whimpers that kept rising with every breath she took, along with her gorge. She would spew at any moment, and it didn't matter that she hadn't eaten anything in what felt like days. The very thought of eating made her stomach knot. Through the grayness filling her eyes, she met out lights, and the blur of voices assaulted her ears. She fought as the arms released, and she slid downwards. Liquid touched her lips, and she choked as fire slid down her throat. She tried to twist free, and hands caught hold of her. Hold still! Doc Simpson's voice grated against her ears. Listen, you have to drink. Lad, you need to... He muffled a curse when she managed to get her hands up and pushed away the container of fire. Glass shattered. Hands grabbed her, arms and legs and shoulders and wrists, and pressed her flat. S opened her mouth to shriek, and fire spilled down her throat. She swallowed to keep from choking. It kept coming. She swallowed again, and the fire went up into her nose and spilled sour-smelling liquid down her chest, and oddly, the spinning slowed. Her stomach went numb in spots. The shuddering, twisting her limbs, relaxed. That's it, the doctor murmured, his voice soothing now. Just a couple more swallows. There's a good lad. Not, she whispered, as the glass pressed up against her lips again. She swallowed, finally recognizing the liquid as whiskey. Warmth spread through her limbs, and the spinning of the world beneath her slowed. She felt as if she would melt in another moment. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. This is your invitation to explore the Commonwealth Universe, the journey of a galaxy-spanning civilization, from its downfall into barbarism to its climb back to the stars. Dozens of worlds to explore and races to follow in the struggle for survival. From shapeshifters and immortals, planet pirates and colonists, to heroes and explorers, there's bound to be a story you'll enjoy. Come explore this constantly growing universe of over 30 titles with more to come. From Michelle Levine and Writers Exchange. mlevine.com and writers-exchange. Dot com. And now, back to the story. Essa's head ached abominably when she woke. She blamed the whiskey, until she pressed her hands against her throbbing head and felt bandages. Then she opened her eyes and found them obscured with gauze. She lay still, 
trying to assess her condition. In some spots, she felt as if she had been battered to a pulp. Wherever she was, she lay on a thick mattress. The sheets were soft and smelled of chamomile soap. Or maybe that smell came from her. Shreds of the day before returned slowly through the churning of her stomach and head. Someone had washed her because she felt clean and dry and warm. Clean. Holding her breath, she moved her hand under the sheet and pressed it against her hip, then ran her fingers up her side. Her corset was gone, along with her muddy, dripping clothes. She wore nothing under a thick flannel nightshirt. Just who had undressed her and who had uncovered her secret? Yes, Durgan had announced it, but S. hoped her friends in the circus troupe, her family for the last six months, would have protected that secret. Don't be an idiot, she whispered. There was nothing she could do to change the past, no control over the reactions of others. All she could do was deal with the situation facing her now. If Sutter and President Lincoln weren't offended by her masquerading as a boy, and even seemed to find some use for her in disguise, then there had to be others who would accept her. If they wouldn't accept her, she would just pack up and move on. No matter her situation, she was in charge of her own recovery. Taking a deep breath, S. pressed her arms under herself and pushed, slowly, until she sat upright. She took deep breaths, fighting the slight swimming sensation. Not as bad as yesterday, but enough to worry her. Just how badly had she bruised her brain when she hit her head, hard enough to need all those bandages? Here now, Tucker said. His voice came through the bandages clearly enough. Boots clomped on the wooden floor. Take it slow and easy. His big, warm hand caught hold of hers. Thirsty? Yes. She almost nodded, but caught herself in time. Tucker let go, and a moment later she heard the soft chiming of water spilling into a metal cup. He put it in her hand and guided it to her lips. A soft moan escaped her at the blessed, sweet chill of the water filling her mouth. She hadn't realized how parched she was until a sensation nearly like ecstasy spilled through her. Her grandmother's warnings filled her mind, so she sipped and swallowed slowly, letting the liquid soak into her mouth tissues, avoiding the jarring of sudden cold wet in her stomach. All the time she sipped, until she emptied the cup, she felt Tucker's warm presence close by. Better? He squeezed her hand before taking the cup. Feel like eating? How bad is it? She envisioned horrible, deep cuts and gouges across her scalp and face, leaving scars like streaks of ice. Not as bad as we first thought. Scared pucket of a year's growth, all that blood, and you being such a little thing. Not that little. If he said she was a pretty little gal, she would... S. wasn't sure what she would do. She had never felt so weak and helpless, not even when she was a baby. Not that she could remember that far back. No, you aren't. He sighed and caught hold of her hands again. Mind telling me what your real name is? You, I'm... She nearly asked why he hadn't looked through her journal, where she had put everything, including her name, her home, her family's names. My name is Odessa Vivian Fremont. I'm nearly 16, and Sutter knows the truth about me. Uh-huh. That explains some of the things he said when he assigned us to watch over you and Stockwell. Well, Odessa, my friends call me S. Glad you still consider me a friend. Do you still consider me a friend? S cringed at how weak, close to a sob, her voice sounded. She shook her head 
and was surprised when the unwise motion didn't make her throb or feel sick again. Where am I? And what happened last night? Is, did they kill Mr. Stockwell? Please tell me he's all right. I regret to inform you that Alexander Stockwell was killed in the wreck of his train two nights. Two nights? S. shuddered, thinking of who had to tend her while she slept around the clock. And several members of the circus, who were trapped on board when it was stolen by a group of slavers, trying to kidnap circus employees, specifically young women. He pressed her hands together between his. We're very good at lying when it comes to protecting people we respect and admire, starting with the colonel, and don't even think of asking what his real name is. Dead men, and boys, as the case may be, aren't allowed to ask questions. So I'm dead too? S. grinned when her question earned a snort from him. The bandages were mostly to keep S.'s many shallow cuts covered, hold the healing ointment on them, the pressure to keep the flesh pressed together so it would heal without scarring. Doc Simpson only had to sew up four long, deep cuts. As he explained the day he unwrapped the bandages, scalp wounds bled horribly and closed up quickly. Puckett was wise to hurry her to medical help, so her many cuts were cleaned and salved, washed away the grit and dirty water that could have caused infections. If S had scars, they would be along her hairline and would be easy enough to hide. As far as anyone knew, in the hundred or so miles surrounding the crash, Stockwell had died in the crash. Several members of the circus troupe who had tried to rescue him from the runaway train were either dead or had been badly injured enough to require being sent away by fast train to a hospital with the newest advances in medicine. Doc Simpson had insisted on going with the injured and to escort his employer's body to burial. S. was impressed with how quickly Tucker and the other agents had taken over, and how easily they fabricated a cover story that was totally believable. She tried not to resent the high-handed way in which she was swept along and moved around the country. For the first few days, she was content to stay in her bed in the hospital and sleep. It was enough for her to know Stockwell was safe, and Jasper, who had decided to return to wearing skirts and be called Jasmine again. The great mistake she had made with Durgan had frightened her. S. was only relieved to know that her friend and her grandfather would be safe. Sutter was coming from Washington, and the four agents were charged with escorting the invalids to meet him. From the hospital on the border of Florida and Georgia, the day after Doc Simpson left to return to the circus, the four agents spirited the three refugees west to Alabama. They stayed four days in a hospital run by a Dr. Hightower, who had served in the war with Puckett and seemed to find great enjoyment in keeping secrets. S. wasn't sure about him, but she trusted Puckett and Tucker. By the third day, she decided that despite all his winking and cryptic remarks, Dr. Hightower was a man of integrity and loyalty. A messenger came by airship, summoning the traveling party of seven to Lexington. By this time, S. was healed enough to be allowed to ride a horse. She could barely restrain herself from leaping up and hugging Tucker when he presented her with a set of riding clothes. Boy clothes. She wouldn't be confined in the wagon with Stockwell and Jasmine. They made a merry party, taking their time going down back roads instead of main highways, riding from one medium-sized town to another instead of aiming for major cities. They stopped at small taverns instead of large, popular inns and always traveled among crowds. 
S didn't understand that tactic at first. Didn't they want to avoid leaving many witnesses to their journey? She thought perhaps the numbers provided safety. Murderers might hesitate to attack when there were witnesses, and perhaps people willing to get involved and defend a fellow traveler. Hiding in plain sight, Tucker told her, when she asked her question after a week of leisurely travel. If you suspected the man you tried to kill had escaped with his life, wouldn't you expect him to be fleeing north out of your reach as fast as he could? Leisurely, suspicion-killing travel included stopping to take shelter whenever the weather turned unfriendly. As they traveled north, rainy weather turned even more unfriendly, including snow and high winds. Their traveling party took advantage of enforced stops to go through shops and ask about tools and parts and tinkers and inventors to attempt to repair Stockwell's leg. It was a work of art, a one-of-a-kind creation straight from Gus's incredible mind. The chances of repairing the leg without Gus's help were low, and S. had been surprised when Puckett showed her the long wooden case that formerly held a small Gatling gun and opened it to reveal the dismantled clockwork leg. She even told him she didn't see how they could find anyone who could repair the leg. Then Puckett showed her the second case, holding all the spare parts, springs and cogs and wires and winding keys, and little boxes with incredible machines inside them, essentially self-winding clockworks to provide energy and motivation for the leg, courtesy of Gus including multiple drawings of the leg, chronicling the prototype, and then all the changes and improvements and adaptations the inventor-engineer had created through the years. So in the evening, when they had some privacy, their party gathered around a long table, or simply spread a cloth on the ground, and they worked together to try to repair the leg. Sometimes they made progress, and sometimes they had to undo what they did the night before and sometimes an experiment undid everything they had accomplished. Then there were the times when they would ignore the schematics Gus had given them and create ridiculous machines that did nothing but roll around or take four steps and then bind up and explode cogs and springs. Those evenings were great fun for S. She hadn't realized how much she missed being able to laugh with people who knew her secrets. Sutter reached Lexington before them. The Secret Service owned a farm so far from the city it could barely be considered part of it. Collins waited at a crossroads outside Lexington and escorted them around the city limits. He told them about the farm. The previous owner had retired from the Secret Service to marry and carry on his family's tradition of breeding fine horses. He had lost all four sons in the war between the states. He ended up bequeathing the horse farm to his comrades in the Secret Service as a place to rest and recuperate. Agents who had no homes to retire to could stay there as long as they had a talent for horses. Collins seemed to find it amusing that eight of the most popular studs in the entire country belonged to the horse farm, and the purses won in racing took care of all the farm's expenses. He stopped laughing after Tucker winked at S., and rode up next to him and leaned across the gap between the horses to whisper to him. S. stayed back with Puckett, who also grinned at her, while a fierce conversation went on between the two senior agents. Collins didn't say anything to S. during the remainder of the ride, but he kept stealing glances at her over the next half hour or so. Gradually, his disbelieving scowl relaxed into something sheepish, accompanied by a lot of head-shaking. When they reached the gates of the farm, 
He made some comment to Tucker, dug his heels into his mount's side, and rode ahead. S then moved up next to Tucker. Well, I don't think you'll get asked to the spring dance, but he won't rip your head off either, the agent commented, not looking at her. Wouldn't go anyway. She waited, watching him from the corner of her eye. When he finally gave in and looked at her, she fluttered her eyelashes at him. No dress. He laughed and snorted and nodded. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library. <laughs>